0: I just wanted to say, uh, before we get into the sermon, uh, greetings from the church in South Asia. They, they told me to come and say hello. We were uh, there for a few weeks in a couple of different countries. Um, I want to share with you that God is moving in those countries. Uh, he is alive. He is active in those places. We were able to encourage the believers in those places to, to begin to share their faith with their friends and neighbors. Because we hear that all the time here in our church. Hey, you're God's plan to reach the people in your life. But it's tragic how far and few between that message is overseas. So we encourage the believers with that. And we had people committing in both countries that we were in to say, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a messenger to people in my life. So very exciting. Thank you to those of you who came alongside us in prayer or financially. The Lord is using your investment. So thank you so much. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, You're good. We love you. Father, I pray that uh, your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Lord, that you'd open our hearts to um, the work that you're doing in us. Father, that we would uh, desire you more and more, that we'd fix our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, our reading comes out of the book of Luke, chapter 18. You can flip there if you would like. It's also on the back of your bulletin. It'll also be on the screen. Um, Verses 9 through 14, here's what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, Thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, That this man went away justified rather than the other before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, I was uh, thinking a lot about this sermon while I was traveling and had a lot of downtime in airplanes and airports and stuff like that, and I was perplexed. I was like, I gotta think of a good illustration that's just gonna bring this to life. And the, I wrestled with the Lord a little bit. And I was like, God, I, I can think of one, but I really don't want to use it. And he's like, I think that's the right one. So here it is. The best example that I know of this parable is me. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, I would be the first person to tell you just how damaging an attitude of arrogance and harsh judgment can be in your life. It can be super destructive. For years and years, while I was a a young man growing, a teenager growing into a young man, I, I spent so much time harshly judging people around me, comparing myself to them. I was so concerned with being right. I was so concerned with correcting other people's behavior. I took on this holier-than-thou attitude like I somehow had the authority to say you're wrong and I'm right. On more than one occasion, I could, I could be seen critically, harshly criticizing others as I compared myself to them. Literally words like, I think I'm better than you because I don't sin like you do. Were in my mind if they didn't just come out my mouth. I had no idea how lost I was. I had no idea how arrogant I was. As you can imagine, this is not particularly good. This attitude is not good. I hurt a lot of people in my life. It's not a great recipe for making friends either, having a spirit of harsh criticism. I hurt a lot of people in my extended family. I hurt, I hurt a lot of friends because I was so obsessed with being right, with correcting. In those days... Humility and care were just the furthest thing from my mind. I, wanted, I was focused on me. I wanted to be the most important person in the room. I, was, I thought I was righteous because I looked around at everybody else and I was like, well, I'm not doing that sin and I'm not doing that sin and I'm not doing that sin, so I must be the righteous person in the room. My attitude was horrible. Horrible. In time, I discovered that the only solution to this is learning to fix my eyes on Jesus. And the reason I learned this is because as as my life began to change, as I got up close to Jesus, I I learned that it's really, really hard to look at the perfect spotless Lamb of God and then think that you're righteous. Think that you're justified on your own actions. We don't really have to look very far or long in our culture to find this attitude of I'm better than you. Mm -hmm. Racism is a great example. People literally thinking that I'm better than you because of the color of my skin, the language that I speak, or the country that I'm from. And condemning others simply because of the color of their skin, the language they speak, or the country they are from. Social networks are another great example of this. How many of us get on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever social network and we post about our life? Oh, man, my life is so fulfilling. Look at all the good things I'm doing. Look Look, I'm raising money for this group of people on my birthday rather than asking for... No, no judgment. If anybody's done that, it's okay. But, I mean, just this attitude of... Like, comparison, and, like, I'm better than you. And it doesn't really take social networks either, right? Like, how many of us, when just having a conversation with somebody, we're thinking, hmm, which one of us is better? Which one of us is more stronger? Which one of us is the better Christian? Which one of us is the better leader? I've had conversations like that where it's almost like we're having a one-up converse, like a one-up competition. Oh, you do that? Wow, that's amazing. Let me tell you about this thing that I do. Man, it's destructive. And of course, the church doesn't escape this either, right? In fact, I think that the church is probably the best example of this Pharisee's attitude. How many of us, when observing the sins of others, think to ourselves, at least I'm not that person? Or to say it another way, I'm better than that person. In my opinion, it probably happens a lot more frequently than we're willing to admit. Someone does drugs or gets drunk and we're like, I'm better than that person for sure. Someone, a sister gets pregnant out of wedlock and we think to ourselves, I'm better than her for sure. Uh, A brother is discovered to have an addiction to porn and we think to ourselves, oh, I'm definitely better than him. We think that because our sin seems less intense or or happens less frequently that we're somehow better than others. All the while, we fail to recognize the sheer massive level of pride and arrogance it takes to think that we're better than somebody else. The Bible says that arrogance is the same as idolatry, which means that every time I think I'm better than you, it means that I'm setting up a little golden statue of myself and worshiping it. Of course, this is not what God desires for us. This is not how he desires for us to live. In ourselves or in our communities, he knows how destructive this attitude is. And this parable makes clear that that is not what God wants for us. It's not how he wants us to function. And ultimately, that the core assumptions of the Pharisee in this parable are absolutely false. So let's take a minute. Let's dive into what Jesus has said. In the story, the first character that we meet is the Pharisee. Now, we talk about Pharisees a lot in this church, right? Uh, I mean, they're a very common character in the Bible. They're these religious zealots, passionate about God and his law. And oftentimes we cast them in a bit of a negative light. And that's not without reason, right? Because Pharisees get cast in a negative light all the time. There are a few exceptions. Nicodemus, for instance, in the book of John is an exception to the rule. But most of the time, these Pharisees are these kind of really evil people. They're obsessed with the law. How obsessed, you might ask? They're so obsessed with the law that they would rather someone remain sick, blind, or unable to walk rather than Jesus heal them on a specific day of the week. That's how obsessed with the law they are. So most of the time, we view these Pharisees in this negative light. But in order for us to understand what is being said in this parable, we have to just leave that behind for a second. Because the original listeners 2,000 years ago would not have had that same negative stereotype of, of, of Pharisees. Rather, they would have seen them as like the pinnacle of the Jewish religion. They would have seen them as, they they might attribute kind of the same automatic respect and dignity that we attribute to leaders in our churches or famous Christian speakers like Billy Graham or or Francis Chan or or others, famous Christian bands. The, The amount of respect that we just automatically give to those people because of who they are, that's how the people back in the day would have treated the Pharisees. So as Jesus begins to tell the story and he says, the Pharisee tithed mint and dill, he, or sorry, he tithes to 10% of what he, uh, everything he earned, he, he fasted twice a week, he, he wasn't like evildoers or, or anybody like that, the people who were listening would have been like, yeah, that's right. This guy is righteous. He is good. The, it, it, would have, it would have matched their expectations. And then, of course, Jesus moves on in the story to the Pharisee, or to the tax collector. Now, The way that Jesus describes the tax collector is as a man far off. Someone who won't even look to heaven, who beats his chest. And this description would have also been an apt description for the people back in the day. We've discussed tax collectors here before. But just to hit it one more time. Tax collectors would have been despised. Utterly hated people. They were corrupt They were traitors to their own nation. They had decided that the Roman government was better, so they were going to not just support the Roman government, but collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government, and then sometimes they let the power go to their heads, and they started collecting more taxes than they should have, and kept the rest for themselves. Needless to say, they weren't the most loved people in the community. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if some foreign country came in and took over the United States? I mean, we'd all be struggling, right? And then that foreign country sets up a government in the United States, and one of your neighbors decides to become a worker for them. And one day, your neighbor comes knocking on your door and says, hey, I'm collecting taxes on behalf of this invading force. We probably wouldn't like him very much. Now imagine that that guy decided, he let the power go to his head, and he decided to start collecting even more than he was supposed to. And while you and your family can't even put food on the table, he's painting his house a new color. Probably wouldn't have liked that guy very much. So as the original listeners 2,000 years ago are hearing how Jesus is describing this tax collector, they would have been like, yeah, he better not look to heaven. He better beat his chest and stand far off. He doesn't deserve anything. He deserves, he's horrible. But of course the story isn't finished. I don't know if it's far-fetched to imagine, but I wonder what the original listeners would have been thinking as Jesus is building the story. I wonder if they would have been wondering, oh, I bet that the Pharisee is going to go away justified. I bet the tax collector is going to go away condemned. Well, Jesus, in his typical style, flips the script. I love it. When people think he's going to zig, he zags. It's awesome. It's awesome. I love the way he he shares his message. So Jesus says, instead of what everybody was expecting, he says, actually the tax collector went away justified while the Pharisee went away condemned. Everyone's jaws would have hit the floor. No one would have seen that coming. It, like... Talk about, like, way out of the ordinary. Like, some evil, horrible person being declared by this good teacher to be justified, while this person that everybody thought was perfect being declared unjustified? Are you kidding? That's insane. But Jesus did it. I can't overemphasize to you how, how stunned everybody would have been. They would have been totally taken off guard. It's like when the team who never wins the Super Bowl or the World Series or whatever wins the World Series. Or like when the, the political candidate that nobody thought was going to win wins and the one that everybody thought was going to win loses. Or when like someone with high moral character like a teacher or a pastor or a priest or whatever is found out to be someone who messed up. The way that the feeling that it gives us in our stomach of like, this is backwards. What happened? That's what Jesus has just done to everybody listening. So why was it that Jesus declared the Pharisee justified while he declared, sorry, while he, why was it that Jesus declared the tax collector justified while he declared the Pharisee a sinner? Why was it, like, what was the difference between these guys? What was Jesus desiring to show? So, for all of these questions, we can dive into the text. But before we get too far, I want to just clarify a couple of words. The first word is righteousness, righteous, and the second word is justified. So, as you guys know, I hate Christianese. I think that it's the worst thing ever. Uh, we have to define these words so that we make sure that everybody's on the same page. But here's what justifi- or here's what righteous means. Righteous simply means to be correct, to be right to be found in right standing. So, for example, if you were from the day that you got your driver's license all the way until the day that you died, if you followed every single traffic law in Colorado, you would be righteous before the traffic laws. And after driving one hour a day, I can assure you that nobody is righteous (laughs) in Colorado when it comes to the traffic laws. But... That's that's righteous. Someone who perfectly follows the law. Justified, which is a very closely related word, is when someone who is not righteous is made righteous. The process of being justified or justification is the process of taking someone who's not righteous and making them righteous. So if you break the law and you get a ticket and then some judge says do this, this, and this, that's the process of making you justified. So I hope that brings some clarity, but what's the meaning of this story? Well, our first clue can be found in verse 9, where Luke, the author of the story, we just know that because his name is on the book, Luke, the author of the story, simply says that Jesus is telling the story to address those who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on others. Essentially, Luke is saying that this story was told to address people who thought that they were better. Who thought that they could be confident of their own good deeds. Of their own right actions. And that they looked down on others. So for example. Let's say that God's perfect standard was just four blocks. Okay. Let's just imagine that the person standing at the top of this pile of bricks. Is in right standing with God. This is where the, the, this is where the Pharisees believed that they were. They believed that each of their good works, maybe signified by each of these blocks, is what allowed them to get into right standing with God. That's what they believed. They thought that it was their own good works that were going to get them there. The problem is, is that both in the New and the Old Testament, we learn that that is an atrocious assumption. It's impossible. Not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. Look at the book of Isaiah, for instance. He says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, it's an unfortunate translation error, if you ask me. Because what Isaiah actually says in the original language is something like our righteousness is like dirty feminine products, used feminine products. Literally, cloths of menstruation. That's what our righteousness is. That's the word Isaiah chose to use. So in Romans, it says that none is righteous, not even one. So Jesus, in alignment with the Old Testament, is using this parable to teach this very important concept no one is righteous, no, not a single person. Our righteousness counts for nothing, it's less than nothing, it's vile, it's dirty, it's disgusting. The Pharisees and those like them thought that they were standing on this firm foundation. They're like, look, I've got it all figured out. Okay, it's not a very firm foundation right now, but they thought that it was a firm foundation. But in reality, here's what was going on. In reality, this foundation doesn't even exist because he says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So even if the righteousness even if they are righteous people and they do righteous things, it doesn't matter because it's just, it's rags. It's nothing. This foundation literally doesn't exist. It's not that the foundation that they were standing on was like sandy, you know, like build your house on the rock. It's not that it was sandy. It's that it literally didn't exist. They thought that they were righteous, but none are righteous. Not a single one. So, The whole assumption of many Pharisees, sorry guys, I'm a little winded, a bit out of shape, didn't exercise for like a month. Um, The whole assumption of many Pharisees is that they were, uh, were, not only were they better than other people, but they somehow had earned God's favor, that they could somehow er, build this little pyramid and stand at the top based upon their own righteous actions. Can you imagine the audacity of somebody to look at the perfect law of God and say, "Yep, I'm good"? The amount of pride, the amount of arrogance it says to, it, it takes to do something like that. Can you imagine? Either that guy is a liar or he's crazy, because there's no possible way, based upon what the scriptures tell us, that someone is righteous. You know those uh, mirrors that people use to put makeup on? And, like, on the flip side, they're like magnifying glasses. And, uh, man, if you want to feel insecure about your skin, you should just take a look into one of those mirrors, man. Every blemish, every blackhead, every pimple, every wrinkle, everything, it all just shows up, and it's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that that's what the law is it's a mirror. It shows us every broken spot in our lives. The law was never intended to build your way to God. It was always intended to show you how desperately in need of him you were. Amen. Yes. It magnifies our problem areas. It shows us where they are. So the fact that the Pharisee can look into the mirror of God's law, the God's perfect spotless law and say, I'm all good, is proof that he is either blind to himself or blind to the law. But let's take a minute. Let's say, just for sake of argument, that the Pharisee could indeed earn his way to heaven. Let's say that if he was righteous enough, he could indeed get there. Of course, we've already established that's not possible, but let's say he could. Would this Pharisee make the cut? Could he get there? I mean, we learned all about what he does, right? He tithes 10%. He, he fasts twice a week. Man, I don't even fast twice a year. This guy is righteous. He's not like evildoers. He's, he's not like adulterers. And he's definitely not like that tax collector. He's good, right? I, I have to ask the question... Does his otherwise pious actions excuse him from loving his neighbor? Does his attitude towards others count for something? In my opinion, this guy is not righteous, A, because the scriptures say he's not righteous, but B, even if the scriptures said he could be righteous, he wasn't righteous anyway, because he didn't know how to love his neighbor. He didn't know how to say, you know, not judge them. This guy has nothing going for him. No wonder this man is counted not justified by Jesus. He has nothing going for him. Which illuminates that first verse we read, right? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. How could the Pharisee be righteous? How He lacked righteousness. He lacked humility. He lacked one very other, one important other thing as well. And please don't miss this. He lacked the understanding that he was in desperate need of God. That he was in desperate need of God's mercy. He's just moving merrily down the road of his life thinking that he's got it all figured out. Thinking everything's good, everything's okay. He's following every single law when in reality, he's probably the most lost person in the room because he doesn't even know that he's lost. I wonder how many of us, like this Pharisee, have been trusting in our own righteousness, thinking that we're standing on this solid foundation when in reality, there's nothing there beneath our feet. I know I I did that for a long time. To say it bluntly and straightforwardly, it's not not an accusation, just a statement of truth. If you believe that you are righteous because of your own good works, then you are the most lost person in the room because you don't even know that you're lost. This illuminates and answers another important question. Mainly, what was the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee? Just like I said before, the tax collector would have been considered a lost cause. He would have known himself that it was not possible for him to earn his way to God. He would have already understood that. And in the story, it becomes clear that that's the key. The key is the fact that he knew that he, unlike the Pharisee, really, really, really needed God's mercy. So he asked for it. In reality, because the Pharisee, or in reality, because our righteousness is as filthy rags, the Pharisee and the tax collector actually were on equal footing. The difference is that one guy said, man, I am so happy that I'm not like this guy and I'm glad I'm not like that guy and don't you know the good things I do? And the other one went like this and said, God, I am in desperate need of you. Please give me your mercy. It's no wonder he went away justified. He asked for it. I imagine that if the Pharisee had taken on a spirit of humility, that God would have given him mercy as well. This helps us to understand that last verse that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the Pharisee exalted himself while the tax collector humbled himself. The Pharisee went away not justified while the tax collector went away justified. I want to invite you at this time to consider your own life. Which character are you more like? Are you like me for so many years, like the the Pharisee condemning others, thinking that you are somehow righteous when in reality you're not, you can't be? Or do you find yourself understanding your desperate need for Jesus and prostrating yourself before God in humility just like the tax collector did? I imagine that the answer to that question is probably something along the lines of, well, it depends on the day. Because in, in reality, for all of us to be followers of Jesus sitting here today, there would have been some point where you said to yourself, oh, I'm broken. I am a sinner. I am in desperate need of God's saving work in my life. I need him. So, if it, so all of us had a moment like that where we realized our desperate need for him. But then I think it's easy as time goes on to start to think of ourselves more highly than we probably should. Perhaps we take a big step of faith and God shows up and everybody starts looking at you and saying, hey, you, you should be more like that person. And it starts to go to our heads a little bit. Or maybe, you know, we take seriously God's desire that we would be obedient. That is his love language after all, obedience. And so people begin to watch us be obedient and, and they begin to lift us up and say, hey, you're something special. And then we start to think that we actually are. Maybe we have a position of leadership in the church. Maybe they let you preach on a Sunday morning and you begin to look around and you're like, I got this. I am an expert. Those are just examples from my life that the Lord has had to hold me accountable to. Things that he has corrected in me. It is easy to get an inflated ego and just do what the Pharisee did. So, what hope do we have? What can we possibly do? I tried to plant the seed of this at the beginning, but I think the only hope we have is the same hope we had the first day, is the same hope we'll have the last day, it's Jesus. So, here's what I mean. When you set your eyes on Jesus, it's like a two-edged sword. You start to see yourself rightly. Because you cannot possibly look at this perfect, spotless Lamb of God and think to yourself, I've got this all figured out. I'm good. I don't need him. Like, you can't do that. It's not possible. And if you are doing that, you're either blind to your own sin or blind to God's expectations because you can't see perfectly looking to Jesus and say that. But at the same time, so when we look to Jesus, that causes us to be in humility, which is one part of the two-edged sword. The other part of the two-edged sword is that when I look at Jesus, I see his overwhelming, unrelenting love for me. And I have to say, I must have value at least in his eyes because if he was willing to die for me, that means that I have value and that's not value that ceases or or stops at any one given time. So that's the part of the knife that cuts the other direction. So, that's my invitation. Let's look to Jesus. Jesus. invite us to keep our eyes fixed on him and in so doing that we would recognize our guilt before him but also that he gave us a way out of that guilt and that he loves us with passion and zeal that we can't even understand or comprehend that he loves us so much that he left perfection and came to earth to save us like that is insane crazy love but we are in desperate need of that love we can't do it on our own The ground really is level at the foot of the cross. We've all heard that phrase before, I'm sure. It really is level at the foot of the cross. Like sometimes we talk about, well, some people might be closer than others, but the distance is far too long. In reality, no, no, no. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags, nobody's closer than anybody else. Not even by a small fraction of an inch. We are all desperately in need of Jesus. So, what use is there in, in comparing ourselves to other people? I would invite us to no longer waste our time. <laughs> like, what use? What purpose? When we fix our eyes on Jesus, I find that we, we take on a focus and we start to move towards him. But when we lose focus on Jesus, we begin to set our eyes on people around us. And in the church, sometimes that means that we begin to compare or compete. In the world, it means we begin to judge. But when we set our eyes on Jesus, we don't do either of those things. So I invite us, like the tax collector, to just receive mercy because we asked for it. We're going to go to our offering now. And as we do, I just want to say thank you to all of those who invest in the ministries here at Grace. Your investment is allowing the, the gospel to advance to all places, with all peoples. Let's pray. Father, you're good and we love you. Lord, I pray that you would train us to fix our eyes on you. That we wouldn't be distracted with comparison, that we wouldn't be distracted with judgment, but that we'd fix our eyes on you and see ourselves rightly. Rightly. Lord, I pray for freedom. I pray for hope. Lord, I pray for deeper levels of closeness to you that we have not yet even experienced, Lord, that that we would be overtaken and completely filled and and so full that we'd begin to overflow with your presence and, 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 and that in that overflowing, people around us would begin to see and wonder, who in the world is that? And we would be able to say, it's Jesus, it's Jesus that's overflowing from me. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a story for you all. Story time. So we have a friend. Don't worry, we're still five minutes early. It's okay. So we I have this friend in Africa named Pascali, and this is his story. He uh, was a not a follower of Jesus five years ago when we met him, and The way that we met him was Maryamu is his sister-in-law and Maryamu is our main friend and contact there with the Hadza. By the way, for those of you who follow that, Maryamu just shared uh, the gospel with six more people who decided to follow Jesus, so yeah. So anyway, it's like five years ago and uh, Maryamu's sister-in-law invites us over for, for dinner and in Africa. The way that this works is you show up, then they start cooking. And so there's plenty of time to like chat and talk and it's a very social culture. And so we're sitting there chatting and having a good old time. And Charlie, my friend, always carries his Bible with him wherever he goes because we're the only two speak English and I'm not really much of a talker. I know that might be surprising to some people, but I'm really not much of a talker. And so he gets bored, so he starts reading his Bible. Anyway, Pascali is sitting in the house cooking And he looks at Charlie and he says, Charlie, why do you always carry around your sword? Why do you always carry around your weapon? And uh, pointing at the Bible, of course. And Charlie was like, man, I got to tell you, Jesus has changed everything for me. I used, my life used to look like this. And then I met Jesus and it it started looking like this. And he asked, Pascali, is that something that you want? And uh, Pascali was like, yeah, that actually really sounds interesting. And, uh, we asked, well, why don't you start following him today? And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out this pack of cigarettes. And he says, because of these. Because there's this theology in East Africa that you're not allowed to follow Jesus until your life is perfect for some reason. I'm not sure where it came from. It's not good. It's not biblical at all. But it's there. And we said, no, Pascal, you can follow Jesus no matter what. No matter what, You can follow him. You can choose today to follow him. Even though there's this sin in your life, Jesus can deal with that whatever. And... uh he said, oh, that sounds pretty good. Actually, he didn't say that because our translator wouldn't translate those words. He said, those words will not come from my mouth. That, that, he, that someone could follow Jesus even in spite of tobacco. And oh man, I remember being overwhelmed by this sense of just like injustice. I was like, what? Like this guy's blood's gonna be on your head on judgment day, by the way. So... <laughs> Anyway, so we we say, okay, you don't have to say it. And Mariam was there. We ask Mariam to translate, and he she translates it. And is like, you know what? I'll think about it. We come back a year later, and we're like, how's this going? And he's like, well, I don't know. He's still getting in fights at the bar and all this stuff. And we're like, well, we really think Jesus wants your lo- wants to be in relationship with you. And he's like, okay, let me think about it. So we come back another year later, and we ask how's it going? He's like, two weeks ago, I decided to follow Jesus. Could you guys give me a Bible? So it's this fun uh, journey to go get a Bible with him. He invests some of his own money, which is a huge thing because, I mean, the guy lives in a, in a mud brick house. He has nothing to his name, but he invests some of his own money. It's, it's a value to him. And then we come back the next year and his life is like flipped, turned upside down. Jesus has done a work, man. He is not in fights at the bar anymore. He's, he's focused on his family. He's sharing these stories with us, super encouraging. We even go to his wife and ask, hey, is this actually happening? And she's like, yes, it's actually happening. It was amazing what Jesus did in this guy's life. And this last year, we found out that him and his wife, along with Maryamu had started this community Bible study on Saturdays early in the morning before the workday so people who were farmers could come hang out. And it only runs like 30, 40 minutes, which in those places is like really short. So they're trying to value people and, and meet up with people right where they're at. Pascali is, is using his property to host this, this uh, Bible study. It's amazing what God has done in Pascali's life. Can you imagine if the door to the kingdom had been shut in his face five years ago? Can you imagine if there had been nobody else to translate that phrase to him? That's the Pharisee heart that shuts the kingdom of heaven in people's faces that says, I'm better than you. You don't even deserve to come into the kingdom because I'm better than you. I think that that's the key to all of this. That we don't have, that we absolutely shouldn't shut the kingdom of heaven in anybody's face by saying, I'm better than you. You don't deserve God's love. I imagine, I, I, I invite you to imagine with me the impact of t- of hundreds of Pascalis in our lives who we decide to reveal the kingdom to rather than casting judgment upon. Imagine the impact. <laughs> Lots of little house churches maybe. I don't know. It's cool. So that's, to me, that's the, that's the outflow of this, of this message that, hey, nobody's too far off, nobody's broken, and Jesus died for us all. So, with that said, I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you, have, uh, you, you find yourselves uh, just hanging out with Jesus, and um, yeah, see you later.